From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. On today's show, as Hurricane Florence batters the Mid-Atlantic, a discussion with Christina Dahl of the Union of Concerned Scientists about how the nation's capital is impacted by worsening climate change and worsening federal policies. Because sea level is higher than it has been historically and will continue to rise, that storm surge is riding on a higher baseline, right? So that means that the storm surge is deeper and can reach farther inland as well. And 10 years ago this week, there was the world economic crash of 2008, which resulted in millions of Americans losing their jobs and their homes. Now, a decade later, has there really been a recovery? We speak to analyst Diedrich Asante Muhammad. It's not that hard to understand why those who are recovering the most are the ones who got bailed out, right? The banks okay. got bailed out. Homeowners did. All that plus Gerald Horn is back in the house and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Speaking in a time of storms in D.C., stormy weather, the stormy belligerence of empire with its threats of war and invasion, and then there is the storm of official lies and misinformation. So, for example, as millions prepared to flee danger from Hurricane Florence on Thursday, Trump said in a tweet, that nearly 3,000 people did not die in Puerto Rico as a result of Hurricane Maria one year ago. Defending the response of his administration, Trump claimed that the real death toll compiled by George Washington University researchers was a ploy by Democrats to make him look bad. Representative Val Demings, Democrat of Florida, spoke to Spectrum News about Trump's comment on Capitol Hill. To say that Democrats for trying to make him look bad. Mr. President, do you really believe that this has anything to do with you? Maybe it's really about the people that we, including the president, are supposed to be representing. Trump's tweet came as newly released photos show one million bottles of water that were supposed to be distributed in Puerto Rico still sitting on an airport tarmac one year later. Now, how the U.S. treats its elderly and disabled is the subject of a new Expand Social Security Caucus announced on Thursday by Senators Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and supported by 18 senators and more than 140 House members. The caucus is being formed as Republicans in Congress have been actively working to make cuts to the popular government program. In its announcement, the caucus said, quote, that the best way to ensure that Social Security remains solvent for generations to come is to lift the cap on earnings subject to the Social Security payroll tax. Right now, someone who makes $128,400 a year pays the same amount of money into Social Security as a billionaire. That's because today all income above $128,400 is exempt from the Social Security payroll tax. As a result, 94% of Americans pay Social Security tax on all of their earned income, but the wealthiest 6% do not, end quote. Sanders said that any Social Security cuts are out of the question after last year's massive tax cut to the rich. Representative Debbie Dingell of Michigan said that many elderly in her district are suffering. 
The reality is that 2008 has hurt the savings of many Americans. And while the billionaires are recovering, the working men and women are having a hard time. Pensions? People paid into both their pensions and their Social Security. They played by the rules. They gave up wage increases. And suddenly what they thought was going to be there is being threatened. I have people come and knock on the door of my house. I had one man who said, my wife is dying of cancer. What am I going to do? I was doing another town hall, and a man came up to me and said, I don't know how I'm going to live. I don't know how I'm going to eat. I'm thinking of just killing myself. That is not who we are in this country. And we need to not only protect Social Security because people have put their money in and counted on it, and it's a promise that we made, but all of us here are committed to expanding it. The Congressional Black Caucus Foundation's 48th Annual Legislative Conference, or the CBC Weekend, is underway in D.C. through Sunday. And at Wednesday's Black Women's Roundtable, activist Tamika Mallory asked those gathered to support Shakisha Clemens, a young black woman who was body slammed and wrestled to the ground by three Alabama police officers at a Waffle House eatery back in April. During the violent assault by police, the dress that Clemens was wearing slipped down and her breasts were exposed in a video that went viral on the Internet. Clemens, who was convicted in July of disorderly conduct and resisting arrest, address the gathering at the Washington Convention Center. First off, I want to thank everybody for listening to Tamika talk about my situation. It really did hurt me like deeply because I see a room full of wonderful people, wonderful women, wonderful people that eat, that stand up and mean something. And I didn't even, I, I couldn't see half of these people come to my defense, nor come to Anthony's defense, nor come to the defense of the two couples in the Waffle House that got mistreated as well. So... It has been a process. Whew. It has been a process. It's still a process. Um, I just really want, you know, whatever. What just yes, I want justice for me, and because not only for me, it's other women out there that this has happened to, and no one knows about it because it wasn't recorded. I, I don't. So, thank you, Shakisha. Thank you for your bravery, first of all, and for coming here. She had to bring the movement here. Mallory solicited legal and financial support for Clemens, who has a GoFundMe page. And Mallory asked that the black community boycott Waffle House restaurants. Also on Wednesday, Code Pink held a vigil outside the embassy of Saudi Arabia to protest the U.S.-supported bombing attack on Yemen, where tens of thousands have died of bombings, cholera, other diseases, or starvation. In August, 66 children were killed in two separate bombings. As protesters read names of children killed, they placed a blue backpack on the sidewalk for each child. Zakaria Abdo Wahab. Ali Faya killed 10 years old. Ali Muhammad Hassan died, killed 10 years old. Yusuf Hussein Hussein Tayyab killed 15 years old. Ahmed Zaid Hussein Tayyab killed 12 years old. Ali Zaid Hussein Tayyab killed 9 years old. UNICEF told Reuters this week that 11 million children, 80% of the country's population under the age of 18, face food shortages, disease, displacement, 
an acute lack of access to basic social services. And finally, in culture and media, just as the U.S.-backed attack on Yemen gets scant or slanted coverage in corporate media, Maryland's voters are witnessing an onslaught of negative media and advertisements against Maryland's progressive Democratic nominee for governor, Ben Jealous. Pete Tucker filed this report. In his bid for Maryland governor, Ben Jealous faces stiff competition, and not just from his Republican opponent. Speaking at a recent rally in Montana, President Trump had this to say about Jealous. In Maryland, the Democrat candidate for governor wants to give illegal aliens free college tuition, courtesy of the American taxpayer. The headline for the Washington Post story on this event began, Jealous tries to leverage Trump's attack. The Post quietly changed this headline, but this coverage fits a pattern. The Post is consistently knocking Jealous while lauding his opponent, Republican Governor Larry Hogan, as being centrist, moderate, and popular. Meanwhile, the Post describes Jealous as too extreme for Maryland. But polls show that, unlike Hogan's policies, Jealous's platform, which includes a $15 an hour minimum wage, Medicare for all, and free state college tuition, is popular among Marylanders. So the Post goes to lengths to bury Jealous's platform under a mound of negativity and distractions, like whether Jealous is a socialist. This one shouldn't take long to sort out since Jealous has repeatedly said he's not a socialist. But the Post keeps at it, turning this line of questioning into a line of attack, one that Hogan has picked up on. The Republican Governors Association, where Hogan serves as vice chairman, has already spent over $1.4 million attacking Jealous in TV ads like this one. Jealous is too extreme for Maryland. Go ahead, call me a socialist. This misleading ad takes Jealous's comment out of context. They can call me the same things they called Obama, the same things that they called Bernie. Go ahead, call me a socialist. It doesn't change the fact I'm a venture capitalist. At an August press conference, a Post reporter continued badgering Jealous over his alleged socialism. Jealous's second response, are you effing kidding me, received all the attention, not his earlier answer to the same question. Him calling me a far-left socialist is what the Tea Party called President Obama. It's what Barry Goldwater called Martin Luther King. And when you see conservatives like Hogan name-calling, you realize that they're scared. More recently, Ron DeSantis, the Republican nominee for Florida governor, used the socialist label against his African-American opponent, Andrew Gillum. DeSantis' statement drew attention for its use of a racial slur, but it was also echoing Hogan's and the post-charge of socialism. The last thing we need to do is to monkey this up by trying to embrace a socialist agenda. While Hogan hasn't used language quite like DeSantis or Trump, at times he's not that far off the mark. Hogan has accused Maryland's teachers union of being thugs, railed against sanctuary cities, and when asked about his ties to an organization that received funding from the Koch Brothers Network, Hogan accused the reporter's outlet of being pretty fake news, echoing Trump's attacks on the media. Maryland has twice as many Democrats as Republicans, and Trump is deeply unpopular in the state. Knowing this, the Post downplays Hogan's similarities to Trump and instead claims the governor is, quote, pretty much the opposite of Trump. As the race between Jealous and Hogan tightens in the fall, expect more biased coverage from the Post, which has its sights set on defeating Jealous. For On the Ground, this is Pete Tucker. Thank you, Pete. And also in culture and media, on this week marking the 17th anniversary of the September 11th attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, 
There are two new books that question the accepted narrative about 9-11. One book is The Watchdogs Didn't Bark, The CIA, NSA, and The Crimes of the War on Terror by Ray Nosowski and John Duffy. The book details the epic failures of the U.S. spy agencies in preventing the attacks. And the other book is 9-11 Unmasked, an international review panel investigation by David Ray Griffin and Elizabeth Woodworth, which questions much of the information about September 11th presented as fact. And those are headlines and happenings. When we come back, Gerald Horn. Stay with us. Now for more international news, I'm happy to be rejoined after our summer break by on the grounds geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston. And Gerald, as always, there's too much to cram into our little hour, but let's start with Syria. Representative Tulsi Gabbard, Democrat of Hawaii, sent out an email message this week pointing out that there is a pending battle for the last stronghold of al-Qaeda and other terrorists inside Syria, and the coalition of Syrian, Russian, and Iranian fighters is intent on winning this final battle. On the other hand, Gabbard says the Trump administration, and that means the U.S., continues to bolster al-Qaeda instead of focusing on eliminating terrorist factions, protecting civilians, and working toward peace. So what's your take? So I think what we have to be concerned about is a so-called false flag attack. That is to say, there are already stories circulating that the rebels will launch a chemical attack. And then, like in the spring of 2017, this will be blamed on the Damascus-based regime, which will then call into motion a muscular attack on Syria by the United States itself. There is another aspect to the Syrian crisis that is causing problems for Washington, and that is Turkey. Uh, That is to say that the United States is aligned with Kurdish rebels in Syria, which outrages Turkey because it is concerned that these Kurdish rebels in Syria will then ally with Kurds on the Turkish side of the border. At the same time, there are sanctions placed upon Turkey by the United States, which is complicating 
Ankara-Washington relations. I'm afraid to say that this Syrian crisis has the possibility of becoming ever more complicated. Well, it was also, I guess, more than ironic that during this week of 9-11 commemoration here in the United States, that there is this U.S. support for al-Qaeda. And on top of that, uh, John Bolton is dis- displayed, I don't know, I guess belligerence is not strong enough a word, toward the International Criminal Court by threatening sanctions against judges if they dare to listen to charges being brought against the United States uh, related to this war on terror? Well, uh, the International Criminal Court based in The Hague in the Netherlands has misplayed its cards. As you know, it's gone after African leaders overwhelmingly and disproportionately, and I guess Mr. Bolton feels that it's just stick to that particular mandate. But on the other hand, what Mr. Bolton said reflects a 2002 law passed by Congress and signed into law by the United States that basically underscores and underlines and bolsters these outrageous allegations that Mr. Bolton said, that is to say, seeking to block any kind of ICC investigation into U.S. transgressions globally. I think that the danger is that the United States may be planning ever more horrendous and heinous human rights violations, be it in Afghanistan, be it in terms of the recent news about a so-called intervention in Venezuela, be it drone attacks uh, further launched from Niger, be it continued aid to the Saudi intervention in Yemen, or the big enchilada, an attack on Iran. And perhaps Mr. Bolton is seeking to inoculate Washington against ICC charges by making these outrageous claims that he just enunciated. Well, also, Part of this statement by Bolton is uh, protection for for Israel, uh, for its uh, crimes against humanity, uh, against Palestinians. Well, that is correct. And Israel is coming under a more sustained attack, particularly from Western Europe. And if I may, what's even more curious is that Israel is using the charge of anti-Semitism as a cultural to bludgeon leaders like Jeremy Corbyn, the left-wing labor leader in London, and at the same time is giving a pass to anti-Semitism in Poland and in Hungary. And in fact, Israel is bolstering those regimes, which is quite dangerous on its part. And finally, I know that you're keeping a close eye on the economic summit between Russia, China, Japan, and uh, South Korea. It's taking place in Vladivostok on the Pacific Ocean of Russia, that is to say the Pacific Ocean port in Russia. And it's accompanied by these massive war games involving the Chinese and Russian military on the China-Russia border, which is obviously a signal to Washington. In fact, it's fair to suggest that we may be living through that rare event, that is to say a global realignment. We see Japan moving closer to China. We see Germany moving closer to Russia. We see also that there are manifestations of that in Africa. That is to say, the China-Africa summit that took place in Beijing just a few days ago was a response in many ways to the fact that in recent weeks, uh, Chancellor Merkel of Germany and Prime Minister Theresa May of Great Britain also have made their forays onto the African continent. This has been accompanied by the fact that in a remarkable 
maneuver, French President Macron apologized to Algeria for torture during that war that took place in the 1950s and the early 1960s. Germany has come under uh, pressure to do something similar with regard to its brutal colonial uh, rule in Namibia, uh, which involved a genocide over 110 years ago, a prelude to the genocide in Central and Eastern Europe in the 1930s and early 1940s. The question for black Americans is, can we take advantage of this possible global realignment like we rode the wave of decolonization in Africa and the Caribbean to the uh, attempt that was largely not unsuccessful to erode Jim Crow in this country. And I would say, unfortunately, that's probably not going to happen because in many ways the black American leadership has detached our community uh, from Africa and from the Caribbean as represented, for example, in the support for the 2011 attack on Libya and the less than sustained support for land reform in Southern Africa, particularly Zimbabwe, However, this global realignment may be in motion, and we should pay very careful and close attention to it nonetheless. Well, we will certainly pay close attention and follow up with you again about these important developments that counter U.S. hegemony. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you. the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital i'm esther Everam. well 10 years ago this week the world economic collapse of 2008 kicked into high gear with millions of americans losing their jobs and homes now a decade later has there really been a recovery joining me to unpack this subject is Diedrich asante muhammad senior fellow for Racial Wealth Divide at Prosperity Now, a think tank here in D.C. that advances economic opportunity. Welcome to On the Ground, Dietrich. Well, thanks for having me. Well, first, I want to get your main takeaway on this anniversary, 10 years after the September 2008 crash, when the largest bankruptcy ever in the U.S. at Lehman Brothers happened. Lehman Brothers was one of the banks heavily invested in what became known as the subprime home loan business. And at the end, it could no longer sustain that business that, as it turned out, particularly targeted black and brown communities with predatory loans. I think one of the biggest things that concerns me now, at 10 years after the Great Recession, is, you know, we had some movement to, you know, uh, strong, more strongly regulate uh, the financial sector, including institutions like the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. But it seems like many of these things are being dismantled 
we're going back to this idea that the financial sector doesn't need to be deregulated and that concentrating wealth among the wealthiest is a good growth model, uh, even though I think it has been a major barrier for any people trying to establish middle class and particularly middle class wealth and is the reason why so many Americans feel uh, economically insecure. Uh, you know, I think there's some numbers that make it appear as if we are back to where we were before the Great Recession. But I think if you look at wealth, which I think is the most important number in economic stability, you see that it's not just a feeling, it's a reality that Americans, all Americans, haven't recovered from uh, the Great Recession that happened 10 years ago. Why don't we define wealth? Because it's not the same as income. It's not the same as how much money you can spend. Sure, yeah. So income, you know, it's how much you make in a year. Many people are paid annual salary. Some people are paid hourly, uh, what have you. But if you, you know, you make $40,000 a year, that's your income. But your wealth would be your assets minus your debt would leave you with wealth, meaning if you, let's say, you owned a home and you've paid, if the home was $200,000 and you paid $100,000 off that mortgage, well, that's a $100,000 asset right there, right? Then if you have, say, $50,000 of student loans, well, now your wealth is only $50,000, and that's tied up into your home. And then if you have another $10,000 in a bank account, which most people do not have, but let's say you did, then you might have total wealth of $60,000. And so and I think wealth is important because, Wealth is what you rely on when you have an economic crisis or a problem. And it's wealth that allows you to take advantage of opportunity. You know, to this day, there are some financial analysts and some economists who use language that seems to blame the consumers for being unable to pay these predatory loans. I, I don't understand how you can seriously look at the financial crisis of you know, that time period and not blame it mostly on uh, the kind of financial gymnastics that people were doing. I mean, one, it was crazy that they had, you know, commonly these ninja loans, no income, no job, right? So the idea, yes, it, it was a financial mispractice to loan money out to people with no income or no jobs. And the fact that that was a common practice shows a big problem in the financial industry. But it wasn't even just that. It wasn't just that they loaned $200,000 to buy a house, it was the fact that then they would package and sell these debts and then sell these debts 10 times over. So the default on a $200,000 house would actually have an impact of $2 million if you sold that debt 10 times. And so, right. you know, that was the craziness. And two, they were also giving subprime loans to particularly people of color who could have gotten prime loans. And also, let's just be clear about the financial crisis that what made so many people really default on their loans wasn't that they got a loan they couldn't afford. It was the recession. No matter how good your loan was, if you lose your job, most of the time you can't afford your mortgage payment. And that is what further escalated this uh, mass foreclosure crisis, is that, is that the whole economy uh, with the financial sector kind of being turned upside down and the uh, uh, closing of major financial firms uh, led to a great recession where people lost their jobs. And no matter if you had a subprime loan or a prime loan, if you don't have a job, you can't pay off your mortgage. Now, also, when you look right here in the D.C. area in Prince George's County, 
it seems the only county in this generally wealthy D.C. area that has not recovered from the crash uh, is a predominantly black county. It's been listed on some many rankings I've seen as the wealthiest uh, black county in the country. Yeah, I mean, I haven't done an analysis to see if Prince George's County is the only county or the only area that hasn't had their home prices go back to where they were pre-Great Recession, but it does make sense in that it was, and it still is, a primary, a, a majority black county, and what we do know is that foreclosure crisis was disproportionately impactful for the black middle class, black higher income. It was already kind of a black tax overall, but also I think it also has to do with the fact that African Americans, their median wealth right now is $3,400. Uh, before the Great Recession, it wasn't that great. It was only around $10,000. But still, like, African-Americans haven't gotten near to the wealth that they used to have uh, pre-Great Recession, which would then mean you're greatly limiting amount, the amount of people who would be moving into Prince George's County. So I will note that even white wealth hasn't gotten back to what it was pre-Great Recession. I think a white wealth pre-Great Recession was around $160,000. Today it's 140000 140,000 is a lot more than 3,400 for blacks. But again, even whites, you know, still haven't uh, gotten back to the wealth they used to have before the Great Recession. And I think that's why so many Americans still feel economically insecure, because it's hard to be in, be in a worse situation than you were 10 years ago. Well, you know, the author Nomi Prince has a, a book out, Collusion, that talks about how internationally the crash set up a system where banks could could recover from the crash with 0% loans from the Fed. And then they took that free money and bought back their own stock, which helped to create this so-called recovery, particularly on Wall Street and the stock market. But average people received no, you know, 0% loans. You know, we didn't receive any bailout. You know, people didn't receive their homes back, which were determined to be seized illegally. You know, even when banks paid a fine for acting illegally, by and large, these bankers did not go to jail and the average person in Main Street did not recover. Well, let's, let's also remember what we're recovering to. Like, we're recovering to, we're going back to an economy that was increasingly regressive. It was an economy where even when there were economic gains, most of that was going to the wealthiest. That always hasn't been the case. Between the 1940s and about 1980, when the economy grew, uh, it would disproportionately go to lower income, median income people. From about 1980 till about now, as the economy grows, it disproportionately goes to the highest income. Some estimates, almost all income gains are going just to the uh, highest income 1%. And I think you bring up an interesting point. It's not that hard to understand why those who are recovering the most are the ones who got bailed out, right? The banks got mm-hmm. bailed out. Homeowners did. And so, there's a, and so it makes sense that banks would be doing much better in a recovery than the average citizens read that uh, actually didn't get bailed out that had to pay the price for the economic downturn the economy took. When you don't have much wealth, I mean, even pre-Great Recession, right, we had $10,000. That isn't that much. If you go, if you lose your job, even if you keep your home and you lose your job, you can spend down that money in a couple of months, you know, very, right. very easily, very quickly. And so then what you're going to be doing probably a year or two in the recession is just trying to make sure you don't lose your home 
you might be behind on your bills and trying to make sure your lights don't get turned off. Then another year or two later, you're probably working to pay off those debts, but none of that money is going into rebuilding your savings, going back into investments. And as we just noted, you know, uh, homeownership is one of the major sources of wealth for most people. Uh, probably as nationwide, black uh, values of homes in black neighborhoods have also probably increased at a l much slower rate than they have for white homes. So all of that would lead to a uh, very slow increase uh, in wealth. And I think you know, that is what we have seen. Well, as an aside, I have to say that in preparing to speak to you, I read that Lehman Brothers was also involved in the Atlantic slave trade as you know, in the 1800s. And that was a part of their development as a business and a, uh, what would turn into an investment bank. Yeah, no, I, I think it's an important I mean, a point. You know, it's a little distant from the Great Recession in particular, but again, understanding, you know, the financial sector and its connection to racial wealth inequality, right? I mean, the basis of racial wealth inequality in this country, you look at two things. One, wealth being connected to land, and so Europeans taking the land from indigenous people and then, you know, committing genocide in order to get that land. And then secondly, not necessarily in any order of importance, the use of wealth of, of enslaved Africans, using people as wealth to work the land and actually, um, you know, a lot of the financial sector in the Northeast, Wall Street used to, used to sell uh, slaves. Uh, insurance companies really built, a lot of insurance companies in uh, Rhode Island and Connecticut were built off of insurance policies for enslaved Africans being, you know, shipped in the transatlantic slave trade. So slavery wasn't just a whip and oppression of black people. There was a whole financial sector, and the North greatly benefited from and really helped create a lot of the strong financial institutions that still exist to this day that were based on the enslavement of African people and, of course, the taking of land from indigenous people. Well, finally, you know, the world economy has changed so much since the crash of 2008. There's the rise of China and the other BRICS nations as economic powers that are setting up alternative systems that make them less dependent on the U.S. dollar and banks. So what do you see going forward for the American worker? I think, again, my greatest concern is that the economy of the United States from 1980 on, you can go a little before that, was a fairly regressive economy that was looking at deregulation as it relates to the financial sector, which allowed for the financial sector to really fleece the American public more and more to strengthen their profits and create an economy where there was greater and greater concentration of wealth. After the Great Recession, there were some movements to regulate, to bring back in the financial sector and to uh, not make it as predatory upon the rest of the economy. But after a few short years, we're seeing that that is already being pulled back. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is being pretty much taken apart. Uh, we're seeing the idea of, you know, massive tax cuts that will disproportionately go to the wealthy and will have to be paid for and probably be paid for by cutting social programs like Social Security. And you do bring up, you know, the, um, the world economy is no longer uh, solely based on the United States. And so we will not be able to actually even, you know, maintain an American middle class based off of using the world's economy to prop us up. So I think, you know, these are more and more challenging times uh, for the middle class and American worker. 
Well, I hope that you'll join us again so we can continue to discuss these issues that are important as people actually continue to lose their homes and people continue to struggle. I've been joined by Dietrich Asante Muhammad, Senior Fellow for Racial Wealth Divide at Prosperity Now, a think tank that advances economic opportunity. Thank you for joining me today, Dietrich. Thank you. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, throughout this year, On the Ground has been covering various rollbacks of what minimal policies the United States had put into place to address climate change. And that includes, of course, Trump removing the United States from the Global Paris Climate Agreement. And on last week's show, September 7th, 2018, we aired Voices Speaking in Opposition to a Trump proposal to open up the pristine Arctic wildlife refuge to oil drilling. But today and over the next few weeks, we will be focusing on the particular impact of climate change here in Washington, D.C., the capital of the United States. Today, I'm joined by Christina Dahl, senior climate scientist at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Her research focuses on the impact of climate change, particularly sea level rise on people and places. Welcome to On the Ground, Christina. Thanks so much for having me. Well, when climate change is discussed, I usually hear a few subjects mentioned repeatedly. Hotter weather, increased intensity of storms like Florence currently battering the Carolinas, more heavy rain bursts and sea level rise. And I guess since Florence is the big news, let's start with that. You know, anybody in any place along the east coast of the United States listening to this show will feel vulnerability to these storms that are getting larger, more intense, and can linger over land and lead to flooding. So is D.C.'s situation in any way unique? I'm wondering, is the capital more or less vulnerable than other places? Well, that's a great question. So D.C. is located relatively far north for hurricanes to hit directly. Even in the Carolinas, we know that the last, in North Carolina, the last Category 4 hurricane to hit North Carolina was way back in 1954. So it's it's fairly rare to get a direct hit from a hurricane as far north as D.C. That said... It's not impossible, and we certainly know that places like Virginia have experienced hits from hurricanes, but they tend to be the the smaller hurricanes, the Category 1. D.C., though, can certainly feel the effects of a hurricane, even if it's not hit directly, and that is something that might be the case 
for Hurricane Florence. Now, staying on the issue of storms, I'm really curious about what feels like our rainier summer climate with these often heavy bursts of rain or steady rain. And I'm wondering if this different rain pattern is associated with climate change and if so, how? Great question. So we know that in all parts of the U.S., since the late 1950s, we've seen an increase in the amount of rain that falls in the heaviest events. So these really heavy downpours that we see are, it's not just your imagination, they are becoming more frequent, more intense. The question is whether that is related to climate change. So there's a lot of natural variability that happens with rainfall. And as I'm sure you've experienced, it can be raining really hard in one place and you drive even just 10, 25 miles and it's not raining nearly as hard. So there's a lot of patchiness to rain as well. So that variability makes it harder to detect long-term trends and to attribute those trends to human-caused climate change as opposed to just normal climate variability that we have in our system. But we do know from an increasing number of studies that this increase in extrapolation is being caused, at least in part, by human-caused climate change. And we're increasingly able to attribute individual events to human-caused climate change. So in the case of a storm like Hurricane Harvey, which happened last August, scientists have gone back and looked at that storm and looked at the amount of rainfall that occurred and asked the question, would this have been possible without the extra carbon emissions that we have put into the atmosphere? And the answer was no, that human-caused climate change, all of this extra carbon emissions that we've, we have released, increased the likelihood of the extreme rainfall that happened during Hurricane Harvey. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're getting this more full picture all the time about the connection between climate change and extreme rainfall events. And of course, related to that is some flooding. There are some neighborhoods in D.C. that regularly flood their basements. We've had some, basically annually, we see stories and pictures from parts of like Old Town, Alexandria, Virginia, that's flooding. And I suppose these are neighborhoods that are extreme low-lying areas or where there's not uh, sufficient drainage or they weren't built with the type of drainage so that they won't get flooded. And and then people from across the country really have seen these pictures of Ellicott City in Maryland. And, you know, if they're not from here, they think that like, you know, that's right next to us. (laughs) And they say they call people call and say, are you okay? I saw those pictures. That looks crazy. So was this area, as far as you can tell, you know, designed to handle some of the the flooding that we're getting from these rain events? I can't say specifically whether, you know, any one location was designed to handle these kinds of events, but it's increasingly becoming clear that the infrastructure we have in our country really generally wasn't designed for the magnitude of events that we're seeing. So to go back to Hurricane Harvey as an an example, in the Houston area, they had two large reservoirs for the city 
And when the rain was so intense and so extreme, the level of the reservoir was increasing and increasing and increasing. The Army Corps of Engineers eventually had to release water from that reservoir, which caused a substantial amount of flooding. So we're seeing that we have this infrastructure in place, but with this really intense precipitation that we're now seeing more regularly, our infrastructure really just isn't keeping up. It's something you've seen, for example, in the Miami Beach area as well, where they see a lot of street flooding when there's a high tide and some rain, and uh, their storm system and drainage system just wasn't able to keep up. And so they've made this enormous investment, $500 million or so, in updating their flood mitigation system to help to reduce the impact of those floods. So flooding is really interesting because it's, and I'm glad that you keyed in on this, because it's not just the precipitation part. It's not just the rainfall. It's the characteristics of the land. And the way we have developed the land and paved over natural surfaces and put concrete over natural surfaces means that the land has a reduced ability to absorb the rainwater when it does happen in these extreme bursts. So it's really that that combination of the fact that climate change is kind of supercharging these rainfall events and that rain is falling on a land that's less able to cope with it. Well, I don't know if you saw the report or I guess a presentation that the research and advocacy group Climate Central put out last year. And and what they did is they used Google Earth Maps to show the worst case scenarios of how so many national monuments would be underwater in D.C. So I I was wondering, is, is that the extent of it or are many of our neighborhoods and communities at a low sea level? Yeah, there's certainly a lot of parts of Virginia and Maryland and even parts of D.C. itself that will start to see the effects of sea level rise in the coming decades. And we know that long before places are underwater at every single high tide, they're going to see more frequent flooding because there are these tides that tend to be higher than average and they tend to occur around new or full moons. That's when the tides run the highest and the lowest. And as sea level rise increases the height of all tides, we'll start to see more frequent flooding during those new and full moon periods when the tide is running a little bit above average. So a couple of years ago, we did an analysis of the military bases in the D.C. area to see how they would be affected by this sort of high tide flooding that would occur in the coming decades. And we were really astounded. So just with sea level rise on its own, not even these extra high tides, between 10 and 20% of Joint Base Anacostia would flood on a daily basis. So that's a huge proportion of one of our military facilities. And it's less so for some of the other bases in the area, like uh, Washington Navy Yard. Well, also five years ago, the University of Maryland Center for Environmental Science funded a study of climate change impacts in Maryland. And we're just a a geographic line divided from Maryland, a diamond cut out of Maryland and Virginia. So what impacts Maryland impacts us. 
And in the study, they included discussion of dangerous storm surges in the Chesapeake Bay and how those surges could impact D.C. as well. They described the bay almost acting as a funnel that could push a lot of water inland as sea levels rise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the ways that climate change makes big storms worse is by amplifying the storm surge that can occur. So storm surge happens when you've got a strong storm moving across the ocean, and it effectively acts like a bulldozer. It's just pushing water along with it. And then that water ends up uh, surging over our coast and flooding homes and neighborhoods. So because we now have a situation where sea level is higher than it has been historically and will continue to rise, that storm surge is riding on a higher baseline, right? So that means that the storm surge is deeper and can reach farther inland as well. And certainly with a situation like the Chesapeake Bay, you, you can get the sort of effect where you're, you're funneling water toward it. The same thing happens along the north coast of Long Island between uh, New York and Connecticut. You, know, you see that places that are toward the western end of Long Island tend to see more flooding than places that are along the eastern side because the water just piles up within that sound. Hmm. Well, finally, I, I wanted to ask about uh, changes that you see being made or that could be made to to adapt or to stave off the impacts of climate change in the Middle Atlantic. You know, what needs to be done? I think you raised the two big fronts that we need to be operating on. You said to stave off the worst impacts and to prepare for them. And those are two somewhat different tracks, but we need to be vigorously pursuing both. So the best chance we have of limiting the future effects of climate change is to be really rapidly reducing our carbon emissions and moving to a clean energy economy. Because the faster we can do that, the more we'll be able to limit the amount of warming we see this century. And along with that, that will help us to try to limit the amount of sea level rise we see. That then factors into how much storm surge we see with hurricanes. And so that's really a, a critical piece of this puzzle. Unfortunately, right now, the federal government is moving in somewhat the opposite direction and trying to roll back things like the clean power plan and fuel economy standards that are really critical pieces that we need in place so that we can, as a nation, be reducing our carbon emissions. But at the same time that we need to be working hard to reduce those emissions, we also know that even if we stopped emitting carbon dioxide today, warming would continue and sea level rise would continue because the Earth system doesn't switch off as easily as we can, theoretically, as easily as we can switch off our carbon emissions, right? There's an inertia to the system. So we do need to be preparing for the sea level rise and warming that we know we're already committed to. So to do that, we need to be taking a forward-thinking approach 
So instead of just responding to disasters, for example, and rebuilding after disasters in the same way and trying to preserve things exactly as they are today, we need to be looking at the latest science and saying, how is climate going to change? And what do we need to do when we do need to rebuild? Can we rebuild in the same place or would it be safer if in the long term to rebuild elsewhere? Or how can I rebuild this structure so that it doesn't flood? How can I design this new road with sea level rise in mind so that it's not just underwater at every high tide in 30 years? And the more that we can do that in a proactive way and build that into our planning process when we're planning new buildings, when we're planning new construction, the better off we're going to be. Uh, Studies have shown that for every dollar we spend on that um, resilience building, we save six or seven dollars in the cost of disasters down the line. So it really behooves us to be making those changes now with an eye toward the future. Just real quickly, um, uh, any examples of that that you would like to give to to the audience, to the listeners? Because, you know, those who care about the issue, it, it can be very daunting. It can feel very frustrating and discouraging for people who are looking at what the federal government is doing. But we know that there are actually maybe states and localities, municipalities that are staying on the path of renewable energy, sustainable energy, are making different types of decisions. Absolutely. So I'm here in the San Francisco Bay Area. So some of my examples are going to be or California-centric, but here in California, we just passed a bill called SB 100 that commits the state to 100% clean energy by the year 2045. It's a hugely ambitious goal, but we know that we can meet it, and we know that we're on track to meet it, and it's going to take change, and we're really excited in the state that that the governor has signed the bill into law and that we're going to be on that trajectory. And we hope that that's something that is inspiring to other states as well. We tend to see this, that California often leads the way, but other states are really happy to follow. We also know in the Bay Area that in terms of planning new development around the San Francisco Bay, we have local regulations that require any new buildings to be I think of it as sea level rise proof through at least the middle of the century. And then at that point, you can say, okay, how much sea level rise has happened? And do we need to update this structure that we've built so that it's sea level rise proof through the end of the century? But because there's uncertainty about how much sea level rise, it's hard exactly, it's hard to plan um, that infrastructure and hard to know what to build it for. So taking this kind of adaptive pathways approach to planning infrastructure is something that we're also really excited about here in California. And we know that people who work in that field of climate adaptation are also thinking across the nation are thinking about this and thinking about how it can apply to their their local communities. So I think there is a lot of cause for hope. And just because the federal government isn't headed the direction that we as climate scientists would hope, we see so much action at the local level and at the state level. 
and at the international level as well. So our hope is that, that we'll see federal action before too long. And, and it's unlikely that we'll see that during the Trump administration. But, you know, this is a problem that's going to outlast the Trump administration, even if Trump is elected um, in 2020. So, so we'll look for that continued action at the local and state level in the meantime and hope for the best in the future. Okay. Well, I've been joined by Christina Dahl, Senior Climate Scientist at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Her research focuses on the impact of climate change, particularly sea level rise on people and places. Thank you for joining me, Christina. Thank you so much for having me. And that will do it for today's show. Our series, D.C. in the Era of Climate Change, is supported by a grant from the D.C. Commission on the Arts and Humanities. A thank you to my guests today, Christina Dahl and Diedrich Asante Muhammad. And thanks to our contributors, Gerald Horn, Michelle Roberts, and Pete Tucker. The music we played this hour included excerpts of Diane Reeves singing September 8, 2018 at the Silver Spring Jazz Festival in Silver Spring, Maryland. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. A special shout-out to our newest listeners on WBAI in New York City. You can listen to complete versions of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. You can also write us at our website. We'd love to hear from you. If you are a listener and are on Facebook, please like our Facebook page, On the Ground Show. Our Facebook page has a picket sign with green letters that say On the Ground. On the Ground is also on Twitter, and we are on iTunes under WPFW On the Ground. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. Peace.